Welcome to the third annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference. Please support these companies. They took the time to educate us during this conference. A slew of other amazing topics. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, learning from you. Oh, you're muted. Okay, that's better. Now, um, how about my screen? Can you see my screen? Does that work? Perfect. Are you seeing, are you seeing that, Steve? Yep, looks great. Okay, all right. Let me see if this, is the slide change okay. Oh, yes. Looks, looks right. wonderful. Okay, good. So, um, I'm going to spend some time going through what we do for pathogen surveillance, um, only, mainly from a genetic standpoint. Uh, I'll spend a little bit of time on hop latent viroid because we're doing a lot of work on that right now, but in the end, we'll touch on some of the fungi and other tools that, we, uh, um, that we're building. Uh, so um, I'm sure everyone's heard of hop latent viroid by now. Um, it's uh, spread all over the country. It's international. Um, it has, uh, we believe, jumped over from hops probably uh, maybe do grafting. There's been a lot of folks interested in grafting hop and uh, cannabis for trying to get the different secondary metabolites in each other's species. So hops makes a lot of alpha and beta acids and xanthohumol. Those would be great to get into cannabis. And, you know, people are looking to get CBD and other things into hops. So um, there's been some folks playing around with grafting these things, and that makes probably the most sense as to how it probably transferred. Although we're going to touch on a couple other modes of transfer that are still a little bit theoretical. They haven't been proven yet in hop latent viroid, but they have been proven in a lot of its close relatives like hop stump viroid and uh, potato, um, uh, what is it, potato spindle tuber viroid has, has a lot of uh, data on it as well. So um, we have a preprint that describes much of what I'm going to talk about, um, but I'm going to try and walk you through it because the paper can be a little thick. Um, I think the most important thing we need to remember about hop latent viroid uh, is that it, it's very small. It's only this 256 letter hairpin that seems to replicate when it gets into cannabis, hops, or um, I think there's a, there's a nettle out there that has it. And then we have seen people move it into tomato and tobacco, although we don't know if those are really natural reservoirs or people have just demonstrated it can, it can go to other plants. So uh, be careful if you're moving scissors around between gardens. We don't really know the full range of this thing yet. Uh, we do know that uh, the hop field hasn't gotten rid of it in 40 years. Um, but what they have done is bred for tolerant cultivars. They have cultivars out there that seem to have a, a less of an impact on their secondary metabolite production when this is present. Uh, so naturally, when a viroid like this gets into a new host, uh, that host hasn't adapted yet. And I think that's where we are in the cannabis field, is that this thing still has the capacity to perform much of its pathology in cannabis in a way that it cannot perform it in, in, uh, in hops yet. So or at least the hop cultivars evolved around this. And I'm gonna propose a way that we can, we can breed cannabis to get around this as well. Okay, so what we discovered in, oh, let me back up a little bit. The, the first thing you need to know about with hop latent viroid is since it doesn't make any proteins, it doesn't code for any proteins, uh, then the pathology has to be related to the sequence itself. And that naturally brings up a pathway in cells known as RNA interference, uh, which is depicted over here on the left. Uh, this is the capacity for some short RNAs uh, to hybridize to host RNAs and then shut them down, uh, interfere with the expression of genes that it has homology to. Uh, now in humans, we call these microRNAs, but when we get involved with plants, they're called short viral uh, or viral short RNAs. Okay, so they're, 
they, they're usually 21 to 24 bases long because what happens is that when a, an RNA gets in there that's double-stranded, there's some RNases in the cells that chop these into smaller pieces around 21 to 24 bases in size. This is an enzyme known as Dicer or Drosha. Uh, dices these things up. Now, those things don't have to match with 100% complementarity to their target. They can match only partially. This is why I have a sort of a wider window here uh, because they can land down and not perfectly match and still interfere with the expression of genes. Uh, so what we set out to do in this paper is we took all of the hop latent viroids that are in NCBI, it's a database that holds these, there's about 150 or 160 of, uh, of these genomes in there now. Uh, and then we mapped them back to the Jamaican lion reference that we built and looked for regions where there was homology. And, and lo and behold, we found in the majority of the viroids in NCBI, uh, there's a 19 base pair homology to this gene known as COG7. So COG-7 is involved in shoot apical meristem growth. So that, that kind of makes sense. We, we hear about dudding and we hear about this thing being in roots. Uh, and uh, so th th there's also a variety of other genes that are listed um, on Viripedia now. That's a website that we built that ho holds all of the viroids that are in NCBI, plus about a half dozen that, that Zamir Punja submitted to us, uh, plus another uh, half dozen or so that we've sequenced for other clients. So it's, a, it's the largest viroid sequence database now in the world. And uh, that doesn't mean much because there's not many in there, but uh, we're working to change that with people, sequence their viroids. Uh, and the reason that we want to sequence these viroids is they are quite different, uh, viroid to viroid. And that means that the pathology they have can actually be a bit different depending on the viroid you have. What you're seeing here is a depiction of the RNA sequence from, from the viroid. And then we've, we highlight on this database that regions of the cannabis genome that it has homology to. So the ones in red are COG7, the ones in green is a gene known as expansin, which is something involved in plant growth. Uh, there's another one known as CLASP, which is, has another pathology. Um, there's, in all, there's about 24 different, uh, 25 different genes that we have found homology to on one of the 160 some odd viroids that are in NCBI. Uh, so this website is tracking where all of these viroid um, polymorphisms are, are how they change the homology of the cannabis genome. And on top of that, we are now mapping uh, what changes there are in the cannabis population that might make those plants more tolerant of these things that may interfere with this RNA interference pathway, if you will. You would imagine if the host has certain mutations in these regions of their genome, the cannabis plant, then this RNA interference isn't gonna work as well. Uh, so it's important to catalog all the cannabis plants that actually have mutations in these places because those are going to be, in our mind, the ones that people will breed with to eventually find cultivars like we have in the hop field that don't have as much RNA interference capacity. All right, so um, let's walk through what some of this, what some of these things are. So uh, the first thing we did is we started putting these hop latent viroids through a variety of bioinformatic tools to characterize them. And one thing that stood out is there is this contr central control region called the CCR. Uh, that doesn't change as much as the other parts of the viroid. Mutations in here are, are, uh, aren't seen as frequently. Uh, now, what's interesting about this is this region forms what is known as a quadruplex G structure. That's, a, that's like a secondary structure in RNA that's uh, very difficult to get through with polymerases and usually is catalytic and sometimes maybe be the, the core of a ribozyme. Uh, ribozymes are RNAs that themselves can be catalytic. Now, hop latent viroid, it's not known whether this is a, has ribozyme activity or not. It, it might be that there's, there's endogenous enzymes in the cannabis plant um, that actually are involved in this. Uh, the reason this is important is, I, I should have had a slide, but there's one on our website that talks about the replication cycle of this. It, it exists as a circular viroid. When it gets into the cell, 
it hijacks a, oddly enough, a DNA dependent uh, DNA polymerase to actually replicate this piece of RNA. And because it's hijacking really a bro the wrong enzyme to do this, it makes a lot of errors in the process. And that's one of the reasons why its genome is so small is it can't sustain a very large genome because the error rate's too high and isn't making too many mistakes. Uh, and those mistakes oftentimes terminate the extension of the molecules. But when this thing gets in as a circle, it starts making lots of linear RNA. And that linear RNA, then gets diced up in the in the in the um, cannabis genome into 256 base pair pieces that then get recircularized and this process repeats itself. So it goes into circles, into linear uh, RNA, and then back into circles. Uh, and it's using all of the host machinery to do this. Uh, we've highlighted here a couple of the regions that have homology to expanse in. The one over here that has homology to COG7 is a nice like short hairpin RNA that's that's quite common in microRNA biology and, and a few others. What's really fascinating about um, the site that we have that, that hosts all of these is if you make as much as two mutations, here there's two mutations in this viroid, and the secondary structure completely changes. Uh, that's important because we believe the secondary structure plays a role in how well this thing replicates. Uh, so some of the reason to, to really track these things is there may be viroid populations out there that, uh, that are less virulent than others. Um, this is a, just an example of a blast analysis uh, to the Jamaican lion genome of hoplite and thyroid. And you can see these perfect 19 base pair homologies it has to COG7 in male and female genomes. So uh, COG7 isn't on the Y chromosome. It's something that hits both plants, as I'm sure everyone knows. Um, and uh, we also charted out the diversity of all these that, are, that exist in NCBI. Uh, and you'll note there's some varying genome lengths here. Um, now, we're still trying to sort out whether this thing varies this much in real life or whether this is an artifact of some of the sequencing tools. These are very tricky to sequence because they're circular and they're hairpins, and hairpins really don't like to sequence. Uh, and people are sequencing differently. Some people are starting with different primers to amplify this, and so the start and stop of their genome uh, can be quite different. You can actually see that in this, this uh, insert size graph of the, uh, of the genomes, that this kind of curve structure you see over here on the left is a bit of a mirror image of the one that you see over here. And that's because some people are sequencing from here to here. Some people are sequencing from here to here. You know, they, they just have slightly different starting points in the sequencing process. Um, but most of them are coming out in this 256 base pair region. Uh, the other ones we're still itemizing for whether they're in fact um, you know, true variants or just sequencing artifacts. One thing you'll notice by looking at all of these, uh, every one of these white bases you see in this screen is a polymorphism. So these things mutate tremendously, just very quickly. Uh, on the scale of, of viruses and viroids, viroids, um, there's, there's a function in here where the smaller the genome, the more error prone it tends to be. And that's one of the rate limiters of the actual genome size. So you'll see viroids are the most polymorphic class out there when you get into coronaviruses, which are really long virus, RNA viruses, they're one of the longest uh, out there, they're 30 KB in size, uh, those um, only achieve that because they, they do encode for their own polymerase. And they have an a, a error correcting domain in that polymerase called XON. And as a result of that, it can achieve very long RNA um, genome replication. Viroids don't have that, so they're gonna, they're gonna move around in a slot. They're very adaptable. Which is one reason I, I caution about people moving tools around between gardens because I do suspect this is going to introduce itself to other plants, uh, and uh, we you know, certainly don't want to have that problem. Uh, in our paper, there's a list, there's actually a, a reference to this Excel sheet if anyone wants to know about all the other genes that it has some homology to. As this catalogs all the different variants that are in NCBI and how some of those variants subtly change which genes there's some targeting to. 
Um, so expansions down here, uh, you'll see um, this one, this is a, a pretty interesting gene we're keeping a close eye on. Some of these are actually in pathogen response pathways as well. So um, that one, that, those make a lot of sense. Um, one of our favorites actually is one known as callosynthase, which is up here. This is an interesting gene in that this gene uh, creates kind of like a cork for the plasmodesmata. Plasmodesmata are the pores between plant cell walls that share nutrients. Uh, and viroids tend to go through those things. Uh, and so if this thing downregulates callosynthase, it's going to make those pores more porous and enable cell-to-cell -cell transmission of the viroid. Um, now, this is something that's actually a really interesting hit because it has been seen in other viroids. Other viroids um, that infect tomato, potato um, tuber spindle virus, or sorry, I, I always go PTSD and that's PSTD, uh, potato spindle tuber virus, also has literature showing that uh, callosynthase is knocked down by other, other viroids. So there's some commonalities in how these things are behaving in other, in other plants. Uh, and this is probably what is helping to accelerate its mode of trans transmission. Um, the pathogen response genes are important to keep your eye on as well, uh, because there is some literature on other viroids moving through fungal mycelium. And they're a little bit controversial because um, some, of the, some of the viroids are known to replicate in the chloroplast, particularly the ones that do symmetric replication, but hop latent viroid does not. It's an asymmetric replicating viroid, which means it replicates outside the chloroplast. The asymmetric ones have been reported to move through fungi and through fusarium spores. Um, presumably, they'll be found to go through other spores as well. This has not yet been documented in hop latent viroid, but we're taking some lessons from hop stunt viroid where this has been shown uh, to, to move around in fungi. So uh, if you have plants that are sharing the same, uh, the same root mass, you have to be careful that it, this may not be simply a matter of sterilizing your scissors with bleach. Don't use ethanol or isopropanol, bleach is what's required. There, there may be other modes of transmission through spores and through um, through mycelium. So uh, these are things to just uh, you know keep on your mind as you're as you're trying to decontaminate any facility. Uh, so what we did when we found this COG seven um, homology is we just quickly designed a quantitative PCR assay uh, that could quantitate the RNA levels that are coming out of plants that are in fact infected versus plants that aren't infected. Uh, and in this study, uh, it's not the ideal setup. We're trying to repeat this, so it's all in the same cultivar. We, we had a straw nano cultivar that, that, uh, uh, that Colin had, uh, had got, gotten to us, uh, and we had a Jamaican lion one, which was queen. So we're comparing two different genetic backgrounds here, and we can see an offset in the RNA. But this does have to be uh, repeated. This is showing that the COG-7 gene is down-regulated when infected. Uh, however, uh, we need to repeat this on Jamaican line because it could just be Stranata expresses that less. Um, so we're, th those experiments are ongoing right now where we have um, collaborators that are infecting Jamaican lion with uh, hoplite and viroid and we're doing RNA sequencing throughout time to understand if this in fact replicates when we have the, uh, the actual host genome um, uh, the same between within the experiment. Uh, one of the key things to do when you're measuring this um, is to you have to get involved with removing DNA is when you do this, this type of analysis because you can get amplification off the genomic DNA or the RNA in all the, in these RTQPCR tests. So this slide is just going through those proper controls where you run the experiment when there's DNAs present and DNAs not present. That's an enzyme that destroys DNA. So you can see that the offset's truly related to RNA expression. Um, this is gone over in our, in our paper a little bit. All right, so what is um, COG-7? Well, you can see um, this is a... a a genome browser that's public for anyone to use that's in something called Koji. And we have a lot of nice Pacific Biosciences uh, long read mRNA sequencing done on that uh, on Jamaican lion. So we have a really good um, RNA sequence across the, the mother, the father, and the offspring. 
that helps us annotate where all the genes are and the genes that are turned into RNA. And we can see COG7 lines up to uh, the five prime end of this particular gene uh, and all of the SNPs that exist in that region. And those are the things that we're really interested in uh, because those might lead us to cultivars that are in fact tolerant of this. If there are variants under the hop latent viroids target for RNA interference, uh, then it may not hybridize as well and shut those genes down. Uh, so there's, uh, there's five cultivars we found in Canopedia that have mutations under this 19 base pair window of COG7. Uh, we're now expanding that study to all the other genes in that table I showed you, and there's many more cultivars that actually have uh, some mutations in expansin and a couple of the other genes as homology for that may knock down the expression of, um, or may alter the ability for a hoplite and viroid to, um, to do wreak havoc inside those plants. So we're trying to label all the plants we have in that database. There's over 1,700 in there. Um, to, to annotate which ones are great ones for breeding uh, to perhaps get around what this thing, uh, the RNA interference that this thing um, performs. Now, uh, we've done a lot of work on this for many years. We've had a hop latent viral test in the field probably longer than anybody. Uh, a year ago, um, we did some work with um, Colin Palmer to, to, to find out that it was a fact in the roots. That led us um, down a path to make sure our qPCR test doesn't hit all the other microbes that might be around in the roots. Because if you want to survey hop latent viral in the roots and your test starts picking up other microbes that are in the roots, you're going to be lost. Um, so the right way to do this is to actually order these organisms and grow them so that their RNA is around. Uh, you really can't do this type of exclusion analysis with informatics alone. A couple of companies have been trying to do that, but uh, they're very flawed when you do this because the genome isn't actually represented as just a genome in these microbes. It expresses RNA. In the process of expressing the RNA, it shuffles that RNA around in a, in a, in a process known as alternative splicing. Uh, there's also a process of making circular RNAs out of these things known as lariats. So uh, you really have to torture test uh, your assay against live living organisms for you to know that they don't interfere with these things. So we've gone through and done that to over 53 different organisms. It is painful and pricey. Each one of these organisms costs like $330. So this is probably a $15,000 experiment we had to do uh, just to demonstrate that this thing doesn't hit off target. Um, the other thing you have to be aware of is where you place your primers in the genome. This part of the genome down here from like three o'clock to nine o'clock has a lot of homology to the cannabis genome. So if you start placing primers in there, and you start calling things at really late CTs and PCR, very few people actually sequence validate the positive signals they have out there. Now we've demonstrated we can push our test out past 45 cycles and not have any of the, the no template controls light up. That means the assay is very good and very clean down to single copies. Uh, that, that all works in a nice model when you're just spiking in single copies uh, of this. But when you start getting into matrix where there's cannabis genome around and all these other, other genomes from the microbiome around, you can't always be certain that signals past 35 are really trustworthy. So um, we've kind of encouraged people that while our test can get down, I think our LOD goes down below five copies. But uh, when you start calling samples out there, you really want to get a second tissue and a second sample because you're, you're dealing with an area of qPCR where people don't have a lot of uh, sequence validation on whether they're truly on target or off target. So we've always told people that while we can detect out there, what we usually find when we're working with viroids is the CTs come out at a thousand times more signal. They come out in the, in the 20 range. So if you're, if, you're, if you're scraping the bottom of the barrel out of 35 to try and prove you're more sensitive, you're probably uh, running into a lot of false positives. Uh, the right thing to do is to get more tissue and sample more parts of the plant, not push your test out into uh, this uh, kind of error-prone territory of, of PCR. 
Um, so why do we care about this, this type of validation? Well, I just mentioned to you before what alternative splicing is. Your genes are arrayed across uh, a genome, and the cannabis genome does a lot of this. It has some of the most, well, most extravagant splicing that goes on. It has genes that can be scattered across 20 different exons that can, it can spread across hundreds of thousands of bases. So what it does is it, it starts to pull these exons out in a process known as splicing to create a variety of different transcripts from the same gene. This is how uh, you know, a limited number of genes can turn into you know, millions of proteins. Um, the other thing that happens, uh, which I have a substack on here, people can go to to read about why this is important, is in the process of excising these, these pieces, these introns, it sometimes turns those things into circles and inverts some of these exons. So you get circular exons that come out of this that are known as lariats. Uh, so predicting what your primers are going to do in this complex mess with just in silica analysis uh, is a little bit of fantasy. Uh, this is why we always go after real live organisms to show the test doesn't, doesn't pick up or crosstalk with, uh, with other fungi. Um, this is a, something we did with Colin Palmer over a year ago where we first discovered that there was actually signal in the roots. We just didn't know hoplatin virus was down there. Uh, now this has been a bit of a, um, I think this is still a moving, a moving target in the field. A lot of people are moving toward testing roots and, and we encourage that. However, uh, we've done uh, multiple studies now and one of the studies we were getting more detection in the roots, probably, uh, uh, what was it? Probably half the samples were positive in the roots uh, and the leaves, but there's twice the number of samples that were positive when we tested the roots. Now that was one outlier study. We had two other studies that we performed with this where the leaves and the roots were giving us the same detection rate. In fact, sometimes the leaves even had higher CT scores, uh, more viroid load, lower CT scores. It's the inverse scale of PCR, but uh, there was more viroid in the leaves than there were in the roots. So this has been a little bit confusing for us. Uh, we're still telling people to sample both if you can, because um, there are cases where you only pick it up in the roots and you don't see it in the leaves. Uh, but we've seen uh, you know, two studies where uh, the leaves gave us more signal. So um, it's still, uh, we're still learning about this uh, as to what to do and, and uh, how, to, how to best survey these things. I, I think what might be going on is the leaves are really easy to survey. Uh, when you dig into getting, uh, to going after roots, uh, if you're not very careful in getting all the dirt off of them, there's a lot of humic acid and dirt that can inhibit PCR. Uh, and so sometimes uh, that can be counterproductive. Uh, if you don't have really clean roots coming out of this, um, you may inhibit your PCR to the point where you don't, you don't see things. Uh, this is why it's important to have these, in, these internal controls. So every time we're amplifying, the blue here is the hoplatin virus signal, and there's two different amplicons that are giving a signal in the blue channel. And we, we have that because there's polymorphisms we're trying to dance around in the viroid. But the green ones are, are cannabis samples. When this signal starts moving out to 35 or 40, that's a sign that maybe humic acid from the roots is actually inhibiting um, uh, the, uh, the PCR reaction. So this, this is really critical. There are tests that we've built for other, um, other things like sex detection uh, that just give you on site, they can give you the, the reaction turns a different color and you can tell if it's male or female, but you don't, you, you don't have any internal control. And so you sometimes get confused when something uh, doesn't convert because there's an inhibitor there that makes the assay not work. So the internal controls are really, are really telling you that the assay is behaving. Uh, and then um, and that way, you know, it's not some kind of poison that went in the reaction. And then you can trust the results that come off of the other channel. Uh, you can see here that the symptoms aren't always clear. Uh, these were, Colin sent us eight mother plants uh, to test, uh, or at least the, the, the RNA and DNA from them. Uh, the pictures he took of the actual plants, you can see some almost look like a mosaic virus. And we scanned this against 12 other viruses outside of hoplatin virus. We have a, we have a panel of uh, PCR reactions that hit 12 different vi viruses and viroids now. Um, but a lot of his other plants didn't show symptoms at all. 
uh, or maybe if you if you after you they were positive, he would go back and look and be like, okay, those leaves have a little bit of chlorosis in here that doesn't look right, and they're a little brittle, so that makes sense that it's probably infected. But I think this is really important information for people to collect because if we want to breed our way, I don't think we're going to get rid of this thyroid. The, the hop field hasn't gotten rid of it; it has other reservoirs, so it's going to come back. Uh, the, the question is, um, you know, if it can go through fungi, if it can go through spores, if if we if people are starting to find it goes through it goes it makes its way through seeds, it ends up in water. Uh, if it's in, if it can be in hop and nettle and tomato and pat tobacco, this thing is is uh, we're not going to get it suddenly eradicated. The the right thing to do is to perhaps breed tolerant plants of this. So that means if you go and slash and burn every plant that's positive in any CT level, you're likely going to eliminate the plants that are in fact most tolerant of this. We'd expect if there are plants that are tolerant of this, it might be able to knock back uh, the viroid load a little bit. Um, likewise, as I mentioned before. If the cannabis genome has mutations in the targets that hoplatin viroid has some homology to, and therefore it is more tolerant uh, and not going to have this RNA inference happen to it, those mutations aren't going to prevent the viroid from replicating. It will still be PCR positive, but perhaps not dud as much or have as much of a loss to secondary metabolite structure. Um, there's other um, mutations in cannabis genomes we're tracking as well that relate to RNAs3. Uh, and uh, RTL2. These are enzymes in the cannabis plant that are known to be involved in processing viruses and viroids. And we may find that there's some cultivars that have certain mutations in those genes that make them very good at, in fact, reducing the viroid load. So having these CT levels, is, I think, is going to be really critical for uh, any breeding program that wants to breed uh, away or into a direction of tolerance, because you want to see these things move around in, in, and uh, move in the direction of being uh, having lower viroid load over time. Uh, if you simply have a pregnancy test that's like you know uh, you know pink blue, uh, you're not going to be having you're not going to have any resolution on this. Uh, for those uh, not familiar with this scale, this is every unit on this scale is a factor of two. So when you go from a CT of 10 to CT of 20, that's a thousand fold difference in, in viroid load. When you go from 20 to 30, another thousand fold. So right there between 10 and 30, there's a million fold dynamic range in how much viroid's there. Uh, when you convert that into a yes, no test, you lose a, a million fold information. You, you can't really track whether you are breeding plants that are in fact getting better from this or being more tolerant of this. So. Uh, very much encourage people to, to keep an eye on these CT scores. They're going to be uh, very helpful, um, just as they were in the, in the coronavirus pandemic. So um, what do we do to breed for these things? Well, this is just a map of the viroid genome and all of the regions that have homology to different parts of the cannabis genome. So in this case, we found a, a mutation in someone's viroid they sent us, uh, and it's got a mutation right in, in callosynthase 8 and this DRIP1E gene. Uh, so maybe this one isn't going to have as, as much cell-to-cell -cell transmission because uh, maybe this is going to make the callosynthase gene not be knocked down as hard and uh, it may not uh, spread as much. Uh, this also means we're going to look for cultivars uh, that might have some uh, mutations in these other ones uh, that may in fact be more tolerant to this thyroid. Uh, we have a Sanger sequencing pipeline that sequences these for clients. Uh, you can certainly see some noise in some of these traces that might be uh, the, the diversity in the viroid or just some of the, the, uh, the challenges in, 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 in PCRing these things, they can sometimes be tricky to amplify since they're hairpins. But um, this Sanger sequencing is giving you a chromatograph of all of the sequence of the viroid. Uh, and we basically will, will plot these things and put them on Viripedia, which I'll touch on in a minute. But some of the key points here are that if we find plants for you that have mutations in these genes that a hop latent viroid is targeting, that's not necessarily guaranteed that it won't be PCR positive. So this really brings out 
the importance of perhaps having isolation rooms if you want to do breeding programs like this, because they will still be able to, to infect other plants. So if you save plants that have seem to have a reduced thyroid load, uh, you need to put them somewhere else and make sure that the tools that are used in that area uh, are, are clean and never, never swap, uh, swap grow rooms, if you will. Uh, so, that, so isolating any, any kind of breeding for tolerance for this should, is important. Because uh, I don't think we're going to find things that are binary, where they're just completely uh, resistant to this thing. They're probably going to be tolerant of it and not actually have a loss in secondary metabolite um, production. Uh, we think it's going to be important to know the viral genomes you're dealing with. This is very easy to sequence now. We have tools that do this. Uh, and if you really want to get involved in the breeding, we have tools that can sequence the entire genome of the mother plant and search for these types of patterns. Um, there's three different databases now that we run at Medicinal Genomics. Uh, for those not familiar with us, we've been in the field for 11 years. We have the largest portfolio of tests for microbes and, and thyroids on the plant and viruses. Um, and we have also housed very large databases for sequencing people's genomes. So Canopedia right now has seven, over 1,700 um, genomes that are on it. These are all uh, integrated into, into Bitcoin and Dash blockchain. So when people sequence with us, we can put a hash of their sequence into a blockchain transaction. The whole point of that is just to get a timestamp that's immutable that we can't change and everyone can understand born on dates, if you will. Uh, we've expanded this into sequencing fungal genomes for, uh, with, a, with a, a primary focus on psilocybe cubensis because this is getting legalized in many ways like uh, cannabis is. So there's a 105 of those that are public as well. Uh, and then Viripedia is something that's still kind of a beta site we put out um, described in our paper that um, maps all of the homology to cannabis genomes and the viroids uh, and the genes that they have some homology for. So, and, and this is this can be very helpful for uh, for um, breeding, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, in addition to this, we're doing a lot of work to keep all this stuff open and public. Those genome uh, databases are public; anyone can download those genomes. Uh, and and we put the all the VCF files and the and the raw data files are up there for anyone to download. Uh, we're also hosting a, a conference every year uh, called CANMED. I encourage people to come. It's in May 15th to 17th this year. It's down in Marco Island. It should be a hoot. It's a wonderful resort down there. Um, that uh, it usually it, all of these um, presentations get eventually go live uh, once the videos are processed and whatnot. It may take a month or two for them to go live, but they uh, we do end up putting all those public for people to have access to. We think it's important for the field to, to share these notes and, and learn from them. Uh, we've also been putting a lot of the papers public um, and the data sets for them public. So um, there is a, uh, there's 42 genomes we put public back in just before the pandemic um, that were sequenced and compared to the trio that we did uh, with PacBio on, um, on Jamaican lion. Uh, that's a very large repository um, uh, of DNA sequence information. And then we have probably next to uh, Zamir Punja has a lot of data on this as well, but we've also over the years put out many papers on uh, what's actually going on in the microbiomes of these things. Most of our microbiomes have been focused on flowers. Um, and we're starting to change that. Right now we're doing some microbiome studies looking at plants that are infected and not infected with uh, hoplite and virus, just to see if there's any sort of change in the microbiome that could be complemented with like lactobacillus or, or some of the labs that, that people are using. We think that might be another uh, interesting aspect. Uh, very important considering uh, the, this hoplite and viroid, we think may have some impact on fusarium and in, in, in mycelium um, production that, uh, you know, it's in the roots. Um, and uh, this, this concept that it's in the roots is something um, that I think is, is, is very relevant to the field. We're finding this mostly in nurseries. Nurseries are using a lot of rooting hormones. Uh, when you look at viroid infections in other viroids, you can see the pathway that makes IAA and IBA is, is impacted by viroids. Um, so there is 
there might be something going on where we're enriching for plants that like to root on these hormones in the, in the, in the nurseries and that in fact, viroid loves that. Uh, and perhaps that, that whole process of selecting for plants that root well is also selecting for plants that, uh, that are more susceptible to these viroids. We're not seeing as much of this viroid in the community that are moving around seeds. Now, we don't have a verdict yet on whether this is moving through seeds. I've heard some other companies working on this suggesting it is, and that may in fact be the case. Uh, those studies, of course, are more difficult to do because you, you can't just grind up seeds and look for this because the, the, the code of the seed is maternal. Uh, you really need to see whether it, it propagates in the next generation. Uh, and I I'm certain we'll see some studies this year that show there is some of that. There, there is a propagation of this in, um, in tomato seeds. They sh so show that uh, the viroid can move through, through that process. However, when they look in, in hops, hop has, has a uh, pollen-based nucleases that tend to attack this. And there hasn't been as much documentation on this moving through the seeds and hops. So the jury's still out in cannabis. I would assume that it is in seeds. Uh, we just don't know the frequency yet. Um, and that's something uh, to consider. When we called up the individuals who had um, plants that had mutations in COG-7, there were five of them. I think three or four of them responded to us and none of them had seen hop latent virus. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's resistant. It just means they may have never been challenged with it before. Um, some of them are going to go off and do some challenge studies based on some of the data we share with them. But uh, it could also be that just in, in general, it doesn't transmit as readily in seeds as it does in cloning. And uh, therefore, the frequency of transmission is probably lower than it might be from taking an injury with scissors uh, at this thing. Uh, so I encourage folks to hit these QR codes if you want to read more about the metagenomic work we've been doing uh, in uh, on cannabis. Um, there's a few more that we've been doing um, that this audience might be um, quite interested in, which is the tests that we have in the cannabis market are, are problematic. We have a few tests, uh, and, I, and I say this shooting the revenue of our own company. We have two tests out there for total robocount account and total use of mold that, that people need to use in certain states that demand those. However, we've been active speaking with the regulators to eliminate them because we don't think they're, they're very wise tests. The reason being is uh, counting microbes is irrelevant if you don't know what they are. Uh, as many people know here that are using biologics, certain microbes fight off bad ones. If you want to get rid of aspergillus, you might be needing to use lactobacillus. And the moment you do that in some states that have TAC testing, you suddenly start failing for lactobacillus, which is a fairly harmful, uh, harmless microbe. So we want the states to come to recognize that a total aerobic testing and total yeast and mold testing are actually destroying our capacity to use biocontrol agents, which, is, which are going to be far safer much more green for us to be using than chemical pesticides and fungicides, okay? Um, there is a reason why Mike, Michael Butanol was one of the most common contaminants in California because we had mold problems people were trying to get rid of. So here we are trying to chase total use and mold out with Michael Butanol. It gets enriched in vape pens and has all types of side effects with hydrogen cyanide getting produced. So we don't wanna be encouraging people to use chemical um, fungicides if we can solve this problem with biologics. Uh, and right now, some of the states have testing regimens in there that really do not favor using biological control agents because they're being really antiquated in how they measure things. 100,000 CFUs of, of total robot count is a meaningless metric. It has no clinical boundary. There's no reason for that to be a clinically relevant number. Same thing is true with total, uh, total use and mold testing. These things are measuring 10,000 CFUs in some states. And the manner in which they measure them is completely arbitrary. They don't really dictate the temperature or the carbon source you grow them on or how long you grow for them. So you can get whatever answer you want growing on plates. Uh, just tweak the carbon source, tweak the antibiotics, tweak the time or temperature, and uh, the results come out very, very different. Um, we did run a study like this for Michigan, and um, they were concerned that we were undercalling with our total use and mold test. And when we ran the study, we showed them we were in fact five-fold overcalling with PCR because we pick up dead DNA 
Uh, we have some tools to mitigate how much dead DNA comes through, but we also pick up microbes that can't grow on the given uh, carbon source that they use. They chose this, this, this purple one that's behind me uh, known as DRBC, and that's been published in the literature to, to not grow as many fungi uh, because it's a very, it's got three different selective agents on it. It's got um, corn fenicol, it's got uh, dicorin on it and, and, and uh, a rose bengal uh, thing that, are, that all are believed to slow down the growth of yeast and mold. So while um, they instituted this under the banner of, of safety for patients, they actually made it more permissive for microbes to move through the Michigan um, process. So um, this went through peer review and we got some funny comments from some uh, well-known people in the field being like, this is completely backwards. They, they really should not be putting these things on DRBC. Everyone in the field knows this, what the hell are they doing? Um, but, uh, you know, just try to educate your regulators. They, a lot of, they're getting influenced by a lot of different forces and uh, oftentimes uh, there's, there's companies out there that, that benefit from using things on culture because that's their platform and so they push for it. But oftentimes it leaves a tremendous number of blind spots um, in the testing process. Uh, the culture systems also take a long time. Um, they can take five days, sometimes seven days. And by the time you get an answer back from culture, there's something else growing on your cannabis plant. So they're somewhat uh, too late to really matter. And uh, it's uh, not, always, uh, not always informative. Uh, we have a couple other papers um, we put out that touch on this. They're preprints at the moment. Uh, so there's one on uh, microbiologic examination of non-star products in the cannabis field. This is kind of an overview of all the problems we've seen in the field. Um, some of the some of these um, plating systems can't really differentiate bacteria from yeast, uh, yeast and molds, and so they have a lot of crosstalk between them. Uh, we've also found some biological control agents that are out there that are being used that even PCR isn't dealing with appropriately right now, mainly because. One of them known as AF36 is used down in Arizona quite a bit. This has a single mutation in the toxin gene. So it's no longer toxic like Aspergillus flavus. However, if you put it on plants, it will get rid of Aspergillus flavus because it grows more readily. So it's a great biocontrol agent because now you have an Aspergillus out competing the one that makes the toxin. Uh, both plating systems are going to pick this up incorrectly and PCR systems are, are not going to be able to discern this. So unless we get it, we, we built a, a, a SNP specific assay for this, just for this one project. So we have a way to do it, but there really isn't a motivation to do it right now in, in many states. Um, but that's, um, that's something to keep your eye on. Uh, and this was an interesting paper we did looking at how sensitive a lot of these culture systems are to temperature. Um, there was a, a study we did in Pennsylvania where um, the labs were using different plating systems, getting different results, and actually the, you know, the fights would incur with all the regulators saying who's right and who's wrong. Well, it turned out um, just a simple couple degrees in temperature growing radically changed which enterobacteria would grow. Uh, there's four in here that are specified. One of them is Pantoa. Pantoa really does not want to grow at 37. It, it's everywhere. We find it in a lot of cannabis plants. It's one of the more common enterobacteria we run across in these uh, sequencing surveillance systems, but it ends up uh, being very temperature sensitive and carbon sensitive based on, the, on what you put it on. So these labs were just having different results because the temperatures were different in the labs. Um, uh, we've done some work looking at mutations in THCAS and also um, staring at some of the next some, some of the sequencing tests that are out there looking at aspergillus. Uh, each vendor is using slightly different primers, and as a result, they have different off-target effects. Uh, and we found in this case, uh, aspergillus tamari was triggering a lot of the other vendors' tests. Uh, this is something that makes it doesn't make aflatoxins. Uh, it's not known to affect humans unless you unless they're lacerated. You, but, if you, if you open up the uh, requirement of microbes for anything that can infect through a cut, you end up having to include all the microbes for really have the regulations right now are based on which things have been shown to infect people via inhalation. And Tamari's not on that list. 
uh, and uh, it, uh, it it's fairly benign, yet it gets triggered on some of these other tests um, for uh, Aspergillus uh, Aspergillus flavus. So, um, word of the wise, give that a read. If you if you have elevated Aspergillus hits, um, contact us. Uh, we we've been doing sequencing for a lot of people to show them whether it's truly uh, on target or off target. Some of the tests out there can't discern um, some of the microbes that are uh, that are out in the field. Um, now, we've done some work in psilocybe as well. Um, this is getting legalized uh, in a variety of jurisdictions. Uh, so we put out a, um, with Seth Crawford's group, we did some sequencing and, and built a reference genome for psilocybe cubensis. We did this on the, on the penis envy genome. Uh, and it's a beautiful reference now. Um, it's been annotated. It is reference grade and is an NCBI now. This is probably the dominant reference getting used in the field. Uh, and once we had that done, we turned around and, and sequenced another 81 genomes and mapped them against that, that reference genome to understand the variants that are in the synthesis pathway. So there's a lot of interesting data there on what variants might be driving uh, the uh, production of originacin versus baocysteine versus norbaocysteine and norcelosin. Um, and with this, we've built a quantitative PCR test that can speciate these things. This is important for Oregon. They only legalize cubensis. And the main reason for this is they're worried about the wood lover sneaking in. The wood lover, the wood lover psilocybes, uh, they produce more psilocybin. Uh, however, uh, there's also been a higher incidence of wood lover's paralysis through those. So this is kind of an uncharted territory that people believe it might be making bufenidine. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, this is a, a very similar tryptamine that's known to be a paralyzing agent. Although no one's really found this in these, in these mushrooms, that is the closest homology to a paralyzing agent that we can find. Uh, if you just take originacin and change it a little bit, move an oxygen on it, it ends up looking like um, this toxin from frogs. Uh, so they don't want those in the, in the production process. So they asked us to design a test that could actually uh, speciate these things. Uh, we did this with qPCR uh, and we can now separate whether something is Slosby cubensis versus a wood lover. Uh, versus uh, Gallerina marginata or some other amatoxin-producing mushroom. Uh, and then we can actually do this in a quantitative manner. We can determine how much of each is, is prevalent. Uh, the other thing that's been very helpful for this community is they are sharing spores. And these spores are usually in syringes and they're usually contaminated with bacteria. And that, that can make or break whether or not your spawning uh, proceeds as, uh, to plan. If that comes with a high amount of total aerobic content inside of the the spore syringe, uh, odds are you're going to have a contaminated uh, injection that occurs during, um, during feeding these spores. So we now have some PCR tests uh, that we are working on that actually measure the amount of total aerobic content uh, in those spore preps. So we can tell you whether it's cubensis or not, and we can tell you whether or not there's any bacterial background that might be contaminating uh, the spores before you go and inoculate a tremendous amount of uh, grain with these things. Uh, this is just the validation we did. We had to um, go through all those hundreds of genomes that we mentioned, about 105 of them, uh, and run them through PCR to show that the test, in fact, uh, separates wood lovers from, uh, from cubensis, and uh, it works as, as planned. Uh, the other system we've been building in the last year, are um, we've been upgrading our capacity to survey microbiomes. Um, so typically when we survey microbiomes, We've been using Illumina sequencers, and they're great and low-cost sequencers, but they have short reads. They only have 150 base pair reads, and you can maybe get paired end reads on those and maybe inch it out to 300 base pair reads, but uh, they can't sequence very long stretches of DNA. If you want to speciate things down to, the, down to the species level, beyond the genus level, you really need to get um, long sections of DNA amplified and sequenced. So we used to be doing this on 450 base pair amplicons, and 
that was interesting and it gave us down to the genus level, sometimes the species, but we want to improve this so we can always speciate. So we, we moved over to using one and a half, um, you know, 1500 base pair amplicons now for the 16S region and for the ITS region. Um, that where we can amplify these things and sequence them that same day on Oxford nanopore systems. These are portable sequencers. Um, now they're, they're really cheap sequencers to get in the game. The reagents are where they get you. Um, and in the informatics, you got to have a really strong informatics team to, to be able to deal with this data. And that's mainly because the, it is an earlier system and the system has a higher error rate. It's around, right now we're seeing 92% accuracy on uh, the, the 9.4 chips and the newer chips that we're playing around with are getting closer to uh, uh, probably 90, 99% accuracy, just over 99% accuracy. So they're, oh, they're getting close to Sanger sequencing quality, but not quite there. We really want to see them at 99.9. There's, there's some tools they have that are pushing it to what we call Q30 scores, which are 99.9% accuracy. And that's really helpful for, um, for speciating these things. So uh, in this case, we can take people's samples in that morning, amplify them by about 10 o'clock in the, in, in the afternoon or in the morning, and then on the afternoon, we can have them on a sequencer getting reads coming off in real time by the evening. So we've, we've turn, been able to turn around some of these things in 24 hours for people. We, we can survey microbiomes uh, and get an understanding of, uh, of what's contaminating the flower and what's causing the failure for their, um, for, uh, their compliance testing. Uh, and that's actually all I had to, uh, had to cover. I, I think I forgot my... Uh, my um, Slide here, uh, thanking all the people at MGC. There's a lot of people that contributed to this. This isn't a one-man show, uh, but there's a, go, to, go to the Medicinal Genomics website and you can see a list of other people we have that are uh, actively working on this. I think that leaves us some time for questions, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. That was such a wonderful uh, presentation on uh, viruses and, uh, and cannabis, among a whole bunch of other things. I know um, I, I thought that paper you did on the... Um, Bactillus amphiquiliensis and aspergillus uh, uh, false positives is really interesting too. Uh, you kind of touched on that a little bit there. Yes, there are some tests out there that can't discern Bacilliensis from um, uh, from Niger. And uh, in fact, that's probably about 12 years ago, they were considered the same until they were sequenced. The genomes got sequenced and then people realized they're different uh, and one's aflatoxin producing and one isn't. Um, you're you're going to find a lot of the people who have tests that still hit that are going to argue to get it put into the regulations because it's an aspergillus. But um, we are we've been trying to push back on that, being like get, get your tests to work right and let's not be uh, throwing the kitchen sink into the failure bucket. It's there's a lot of cannabis at, at play here, and we don't have evidence of Brazilians is causing aspergillosis yet. So um, th this is a, you know one of our pushes here is make these tests very species specific because then you're going after only the pathogens. The wider you make that net, the more cannabis fails for reasons that don't have any clinical backing. Uh, and uh, we, we, we don't need that. The, the more stringency you put on um, uh, that, that is not grounded in clinical concern, the more that you put on the legal market, the more is going to go through the other market. Uh, we already have a problem of the price of cannabis in the legal market being so much higher than the black market that there's all types of arbitrage going on. Well, a lot of that is because there is there are very stringent measures uh, on testing that don't have any clinical grounding. They're doing these total aerobic count tests and these total yeast and mold tests. So you end up elevating the fail rate for cannabis flower for no real clinical basis other than some people are afraid of microbes. Um, people who have been growing like in your community know you need microbes to make these things grow. There's no such thing as nitrogen fixation without them. So 
Uh, we got to have a very intelligent approach and encourage people, make them very species specific so that we're only failing for things that are known pathogens and we're not getting uh, crazy here and, and uh, you know, burning down entire groves over uh, things that have no basis for there being clinical concern. Got another question. Can you adjust temperatures in the root zone um, or in the canopy to help uh, the plant fend off viruses or viroids? So that's a very good question. Um, Samir was telling me he was doing temperature measurements, uh, not just in the room, but inside the buds. They're actually hotter inside the bud than they are outside. Uh, and presumably due to um, just not dissipating heat in the process of photosynthesis in the center. So that, that, that could be having an, an impact. I'm not aware of any studies that have been looking at uh, what happens to the shift in the microbiome when you do that. It's a very interesting question if that's a, if that's a way to deal with these microbes. Uh, and particularly the viroids, the, the, the tissue culture facilities I've been speaking to are, are leveraging temperature, but cold temperature. They're taking cuts of these meristems, putting them in cold temperature because the viroid can't replicate with that polymerase at low temperature, but the plant can slowly replicate. And so slowly the plant out replicates the viroid and then the viroid disappears in some percentage of them. Um, now I understand it's not a hundred percent process. It takes a lot of time, but um, that seems to be uh, what works the best at the moment for getting rid of it. Uh, it's That's a good question awesome. about doing it in the roots. I don't, I don't know what that will do, whether um, heat will help in, in the roots. Uh, there, there's one paper out there of people applying heat, but it's much higher heat than I, I suspect you ever want to put on your roots. There's some thermal mutants that people put into NCBI uh, where they, 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 um, they heat it up. I think, I think it went as high as 40 C. I got to go read the paper again, but they, they heated these things up to get them to mutate a little bit and, and they're able to move them into tomatoes that way. So um, that, that's, uh, it will drive the mutation rate um, if, you, if you alter the temperature. And I know Breeder Steve did a bunch of work with, with flowering times and root temperatures and stuff like that. Um, you could probably ask that question tomorrow. Oh, I think on. I have him on, on Twitter. I do have to I, I reach out to him, see what he knows. <laughs> I'm currently working on one of his projects. Um, uh, we had another question. Is there other environmental factors that can, um, where, where is it? I wonder if there are specific seasons that trigger the viroid or can stress the viroids affecting effects. That's a very good question. Um, I'm kind of, I, I would imagine that the seasonality and the temperatures may play a role in what um, what viroids we're seeing. Uh, particularly, so when we sequence a lot of indoor grows, the, the viroid sequences haven't diverged very much, but when you get out into the wild, that might change. And certainly what we're seeing in NCBI, which is which are collections of these viroid sequences from all over the world, there's a lot, there's a lot of divergence. And there's probably some seasonality to that, just like we see seasonality in coronavirus sequences. So I bet that's the case uh, once those studies get done. I also have a feeling that the, the reason we see discordance in root versus leaf may have something to do with where those roots were. Like we haven't done a great job uh, documenting whether people were in cocoa or what type of soil they're in. And maybe what we're seeing is, uh, yes, you should always survey the roots because it's higher, particularly in a particular type of soil type that you're in. But you know, we, right now we just have two studies where we didn't see a difference and we saw some, some decay in the amount of signal that we we're getting off of the roots. And another study where if you didn't survey the roots, you would have been screwed. Um, so uh, we're kind of encouraging people to do both um, at the moment until, uh, until you know what's going on in your grow. And uh, if, if you see that, that you get equal signals between roots and leaves in your grow, then if leaves are easier to go after, you can use that going forward. But 
I wouldn't start with leaves. I'd, I'd start with both. And then um, if, if you see that, that the roots are actually giving you lower signal, you can you, you then can default to doing the easier approach of, of grabbing the grabbing a hole punch in the leaves. I know nutrient level and light actually can, can cause expression too. I know we've talked about this before, but I've seen mosaic virus express just under one specific company's light and not under the other three companies, even though the genetics that are the is same. wild. Yes. I, you know, I've seen far, um, like far red light systems as well have an impact on powdery mildew from some, um, uh, some folks I've, I've spoken to. I, I've not seen a paper actually nail it, but uh, that's something that is very interesting to us, whether or not they're, is a way to deal with PM or these viroids by, by hitting them with different light. So much to do. They're, these are all really good questions that sadly we don't yet have answers to, but, but we do have a program um, for, for helping people research these things. So certainly reach out to us because we're, we're actively trying to sequence viroids and uh, run some tests. We, we have a couple other tests um, at MGC that aren't yet public that may give us other information on this viroid as well. So we'll, we'll be probably sharing those in six months. Do you want to uh, give it, we have a couple of minutes left. Do you want to tell everybody just about the couple, the different tests and different things that you guys offer? Uh, oh yeah, sure. So if you, if you hit our website, you'll see there's a lot of aspergillus tests that are there. Um, e. coli, salmonella, all the regulated tests that you need for compliance testing, we have, we have uh, options for. And then beyond that, um, I don't, unfortunately, sadly, I don't have all the viruses uh, memorized that we have tests for, but there's 12 of them there. There's beet curly top. There's, um, there's uh, some of the Tobacco, oh, there you go, tobacco mosaic viruses um, that are up there. Uh, not all of them on the viruses are on the website yet, mainly because we're waiting for sequence confirmation of the actual, we have the assays built and we're using them, we've been using them internally for a year, but we're trying to find um, people who actually, once we get a positive, we can sequence it and prove what it is. Um, that's, uh, so we have, there's a host of tests that we don't release until we actually have sequence confirmation that the genome has been in cannabis. Uh, that's now occurred on lettuce chlorosis virus, beet curly top virus. Uh, it's, a, it's, uh, we've seen cryptic cannabis virus come out of Colorado. Um, there's, uh, I think there's a few other in that Colorado paper as well, that once we get a paper like that, we, uh, there you go, tobacco mosaic is up there. Um, yeah, there are some tests in there for screening for different types of genetics um, that people may be interested in. Uh, and we do have uh, varying degrees of sequencing that you can do for the cannabis plant, either the whole genome or 10 million bases of just the coding content of the genome. And we even have a DNA SNP chip that will give you 85,000 markers that a lot of people use for breeding. That one's the sort of the cheapest mass uh, genetic survey you can do on, do on the plant. Um, And then uh, I think that's prim primarily it. Viruses, uh, there are a oh, fusarium and the other, there's, there's a handful of, um, of fungal pathogens that we have some tests for that aren't really on the regulated set. Um, they're not necessarily human pathogens, but they are, um, I wouldn't say that about fusarium. Fusarium actually can be a human pathogen, but it's not, it's not believed to be one in the regulatory eyes at the moment, but it is certainly a plant pathogen. And we do see that, uh, we did a recent study with somebody where, uh, fusarium was pretty much everywhere in their in their grow, even in the plants that weren't infected and the plants that were. It was it was at a higher CT in the infected plants than the non-infected plants, and it was at a higher frequency, about twice the frequency in the in the uh, infected ones versus the not. But it was certainly um, throughout that particular grow. So um, that's one that we're encouraging people to keep an eye on because it may be playing a role in transmission, and um, it may be also be playing a role in uh, the susceptibility of the plant to having uh, to, to getting uh, the viroid.
you know, what you're paging through here is Canopedia. So when we sequence someone's genome, we compare it to everything else in the database. Uh, we look at all the variants that are in the genes in the pathway for producing cannabinoids. Um, the heterozygosity is helpful for people you know, trying to uh, generate seeds that are more stable. Um, we obviously scan the Y chromosome to figure out male and female, but usually people know that by looking at it. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, some of those are the, uh, the PKS genes are involved in making the precursors to the cannabinoids. So um, those polyketide synthases are, are important. Um, so all of that information is getting tracked and uh, could be helpful for um, you know, marking and breeding for plants that may have uh, higher production of, uh, of, of certain secondary metabolites. Now, is there, uh, let me check the chat real fast and make sure I'm not missing any questions for you. All right, that seems empty, but. Um, oh, I think you're on mute. There we go. I'm having a problem with my screen here I'm trying to get. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, there we go. I got control of my screen again. I've been having some issues now and then with uh, trying to juggle these two screens. Though sometimes Zoom is wigging out post uh, update. But thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's a wonderful presentation. And it's always uh, great to have you on. Uh, you're such a, a knowledgeable speaker and. Uh, it's always a joy to have you on and, and educating us with all of the different stuff because you're always putting out tons of great new knowledge. If you guys aren't really with him, check out all the other papers and everything else he's put out. And he's also done like three or four episodes on our, our podcast as well that are just as informative as his talk was. So uh, thanks I love again coming on these. Yeah, no, thank you for having me, Steve, because I, I learned you guys throw such relevant questions that I, uh, I learned so much from people who are actually in the field on this thing. So it's very helpful to come in and sync up with you guys to know uh, what people are doing with different root temperatures and what have you, because uh, we're kind of in a lab uh, a bit in an echo chamber. So it's good to, it's good to meet the people who are actually doing this stuff and uh, get, get interrogated by it. So I, I very much appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. And, and thanks for taking the time to share. All right. Take care. Please support these companies. They took the time to educate us during this conference. If you're looking for more education on aquaponic cannabis, please consider the Aquaponic Cannabis Masterclass at apmjclass.com, featuring over seven days of in-depth, hands-on educational content with Marty Waddell and Stephen Reisner as your guides through the aquaponic cannabis universe. We'll cover everything from construction of large commercial facilities, home size systems, backyard systems, nutrients, pest control, diseases, everything you can think of and, uh, and so much more. So be sure to check that out at apmjclass.com. And if you're looking for aquaponic cannabis or living soil uh, pest control courses, please check out uh, thepestclass.com where we have a huge in-depth course on pest control, how to make your own um, bio controls, as well as in-depth guides and identification guides for a whole slew of different pests that you might encounter in your aquaponics garden. And it's not strictly just geared towards cannabis. 
Uh, it's also geared towards vegetables as well. So be sure to check that out if it's something you think you might need to improve in your education.